lovers. Welcome to Get Real, a podcast hosted by the National Animal Interest Alliance, through which we'll have deeply honest conversations about animal research so we can learn together and make compassionate choices about our medical future together. Welcome to episode 19 of Get Real. I'm Dr. Cindy Buckmaster, your host for Get Real, and I'd like to start today's episode with a question I get a lot on social media. Why are we still doing research with animals when there are several human-relevant, non-animal alternatives available right now that could be used to develop new medical treatments? It's a great question, and I've invited Dr. Megan LaFollette, Program Director of the North American 3Rs Collaborative, to help us break it down on today's episode of Get Real. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. LaFollette. There's so much to talk about. I mean, we, we keep hearing every day in the mainstream media about how we can replace animals in research with these new fancy technologies. Organs on a chip is something we hear a lot about. And I want to talk a lot about these technologies with you because you know quite a bit. And the organization that you direct has a very special initiative related to the development and integration of these technologies. And I think our listeners will be thrilled to hear all of that. But before that, I want you to please share with us one of my favorite things about you, and that is your rat tickling experience, if you don't mind. Describe why this really matters to the animal and why this technique was developed. Yeah, I'd be thrilled to. So um, first of all, it is a real thing backed by science. People often look at me with this strange look on my face, like I'm really trying to joke with them. But basically, there's been over 50, probably at this point, over 75 published peer-reviewed articles. And how I explain rat tickling to people is if you've ever seen young puppies running around, wrestling, and playing with each other, when rats are young, they actually have a very similar play style. And just like you can run around and play with your puppy, you can run around with your hand and play with your rat. Neuroscientists were actually the one to invent this technique to study positive emotions. Rats love it. They actually kind of make these ultrasonic vocalizations, which means we can't hear them, but they're making them. And they're one of the gold standards for measuring positive emotions in rats. Um, And I was really interested in rat tickling as an intervention because we know that when you first interact with a rat, they're pretty small. And then we're this big organism and then we're swooping in there, we're grabbing them, we're like giving them an injection, we're giving them drugs, we're like, hey, go do this maze. And they're just like, okay, you're not cool and I'm not your friend. And then they get scared and they get stressed. And we know stress, like chronic stress is not good for research. It's not good for rats. It's not good for ethics. There's, you know, it's just not good. But when we were still studying this play behavior, there were some scientists, actually Sylvie Cloutier um, from University of Washington. Um, it was Jacques Pankseth and his colleague Jeffrey Bergdorf who actually developed this technique. Sylvie was actually one of their students. And she actually thought, well, maybe we could use this to change how rats feel about people in their everyday interactions. And so basically, what we've discovered and what some of my research and research from many other labs have supported is when you first 
first get a rat into your lab, what you can do is do this tickling procedure. You know, most of us know that like tickling motion, the like waggling your fingers. And you do that right behind the rat's ears, kind of on their nape of their neck. And then you actually pick them up and you kind of flip them over. It looks kind of rough, but remember, this is rough and tumble play that we're mimicking. You pick them up kind of under their armpits, you flip them over onto their back, and then you do that same like kind of tickling motion on their stomach. And you only have to do it for 15 seconds for three days and then do it again before cage change or the interaction. Then the rats are like, oh, okay, you're cool. Like we can be friends and I'm not going to be super stressed out. And it actually lasts. It just totally changes that human animal relationship. And some of the things that people that are doing this in the real world have discovered, their rats just behave, you know, they walk in the room and rather than the rats just like laying there, like kind of bleh, they walk in that room and the rats are up at their cages. They're at the front. They have their little paws up. They're looking around. They're sniffing. They're just excited to see the people who play with them. It's pretty exciting. It's pretty fun. Um, You can get certified in rat tickling. I created as part of my PhD program, a rat tickling certificate course. It only takes about 30 minutes. One day Twitter found out about it. They were very excited. So you too can become a certified rat tickler. It's pretty exciting. That's actually what my PhD is in. That's kind of where I got my start. And now I also know about microphysiological systems, which sometimes blows my own mind. I didn't even know what they were a couple of years ago myself. And I'm going to ask you to talk about that next, but I will ask you if you can provide a video for us of the rats being tickled because it's just so stinking cute and everybody needs to see it. And I will put that up on the episode response page for this episode so our listeners can go back and and check it out. So now let's get into, uh, like you mentioned, the microphysiological systems, and I think we'll just call it MPS. Um, These are the things we're talking about when we talk about, you know, non-animal alternatives, right? Alternatives to research with animals. But to set the stage for that, I want you to take a few moments to describe the organization that you are doing all this work with. So you are the program director for the North American 3Rs Collaborative, or what we like to call the NA3RC. Maybe you can talk a little bit about what the 3Rs are for those of us who are listening that don't know what that is, and and the work of your organization, and, and why the work of that organization is valuable to society at large. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, the North American Three Hours Collaborative, we're a nonprofit whose mission is to advance science, innovation, and research animal welfare. And we do this through the application of what we call the Three Rs. These are different from the Three Rs that many of you might recognize with um, recycling, um, replacing, etc. They're the Three Rs of animal research. And what these Three Rs are is first, there's refinement. This is about improving the lives of research animals that must be used. Then there's reduction. This is about making sure that when we do have to do an animal experiment, we're minimizing the animal numbers while maximizing good data. And we often at the collaborative have concepts related to validity, reproducibility, and translation kind of wrapped up in this reduction piece. We want to make sure that the research that we're doing is really high quality. And then the final R is replacement. Um, So this is actually replacing animal experiments with alternative technologies 
studies, but really we emphasize that this should only be done when it is truly scientifically appropriate and valid, um, which can sometimes be challenging to find these replacements. But that's our organization. And what we do is we try to work directly with people who work in animal research, scientific research broadly to accomplish all three of these R's. And we really take a balanced view, which we believe is really important for accomplishing our mission and making real change. Because these large pharmaceutical organizations, academic institutions, they are doing animal research. And so by working with them, by um, partnering with them, by taking people who have done really amazing work in the three R's, lifting them up, championing them, and also trying to understand, you know, sometimes there's these techniques and they're not applied. Why is that? What's the barriers? Because we know that people want to do what's right. People want to do the best care for the animals. They want to have high quality studies. They want to replace them. Like nobody doesn't want that. But in reality, it can be challenging to achieve. And so we are all about kind of trying to break down the barriers and just make it easier to implement all three of these R's. And we really focus on techniques that have strong evidence, will make a big impact and are ultimately practical because this is what we believe is going to make the most progress as fast as possible. Yeah, that's fantastic. The thing I really, really love about it is that your collaborative and your team, you've become sort of the quarterbacks for coordinating all of this. I mean, there's just so many people, thousands of people involved in research, and there has to be a quarterback and somebody, you know, really taking the reins on moving things forward, right? At, at Get Real, we have a tagline, it's stronger science, faster cures, fewer animals. And that is the way forward. And that is how we will reduce the number of animals necessary in research. But somebody's got to pull all of these brilliant minds together. Together and also somehow create a realistic and balanced, solid narrative for the public to really understand, including our legislators who are getting mixed information from all kinds of different sources, right? So getting back to the three R's, I think it's fair to say then that your rat tickling was uh, a refinement technique, right? <laughs> right to, yeah. to induce positive affect in your, and they're so cute rats. I cannot wait for people yeah. to see this video. And, and so now I want to get into these microphysiological systems, these non-animal alternatives, these alternatives to animals and research. And we're going to call them MPS from now on, because I'm sure I will screw that up and say, who knows what, if I have to keep saying microphysiological <laughs> systems, right? It's a long um, one. Yeah. So the NA3RC has a defined and distinct MPS MPS initiative. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that because that speaks to this quarterbacking thing that I was just talking about. And you're very active in it and you've already gone quite far. And I think our listeners would be fascinated to know about it. So please. Absolutely. So when the NA3RC is really looking to make change, we recognize that we have to be really targeted. So we have to pick these specific 3Rs techniques that, again, we think have strong evidence, will make a big impact, and are practical. And we have six of these initiatives right now spread across the 3Rs between refinement, reduction, and replacement. We've got two focused on replacement, and one of them is focused on microphysiological systems. And our microphysiological systems initiative is unique in the larger um, MPS field because it's actually focused on the technology providers that have commercial systems that they are selling. And this is an important distinction for us because our emphasis on practicality. There's a lot of academics who are studying these systems, who are building their own systems, who are doing a lot of really great basic research. But a lot of times those academic systems just aren't scalable. They just just aren't really practical for somebody else other than the person who created that system to take it and use it. 
You mean like for a drug company, for example? Yes. Yes. For a drug company or someone who, you know, maybe is studying a totally different disease is not a bioengineer. They can't make these themselves. They need something kind of prepackaged. And most of these technology providers, they have their roots in the academic space. That's where they came from. But now they've actually made it scalable. They really understand both the promise and the limitations of these technologies. And they're always conducting research and development in the background. We really think that they are one of the key stakeholders. And so we really work with them. Um, We connect them to what we call the end users. So that is the drug companies, that's the academic users, and then the regulatory agents. That's like the FDA or the EPA. You know, these are kind of the three key stakeholders. And then the academic institutions really support the others. That's really our focus. And then we're trying to basically create more education about MPS. We're trying to to help make regulatory progress um, go a little bit faster and just explore that. Again, connect with the end users and then make sure that it's just easier, trying to make it a little bit easier for people who are doing research right now to use these technologies. Right. So just as a reminder for our listeners, most of our discussion is going to be in the applied end of the research spectrum, right? The drug development stuff. Currently, all of the drugs that are released to market spend most of their time getting tested in human beings through multiple phases of clinical trials. And of course, we all became familiar with that during the COVID vaccine development, right? Before any of these test compounds that we hope will be drugs one day can be put into human volunteers, there is this stage called preclinical testing in animals where the drugs are screened for safety and efficacy prior to giving them to human volunteers, which is where the bulk of the evaluation happens, right? I mean, so really it's the human work and testing that determines whether things are released to market. And what we're talking about then is using these technologies that you've mentioned uh, made by some of these folks who've already got prepackaged options for drug companies and other large groups who will be engaged in this process, right? Or the FDA who's trying to determine whether or not the data that's coming from these evaluations will result in a drug that they feel comfortable releasing to the public, right? So we're talking about doing what we can to improve the information we get in that preclinical phase, either in combination with animal studies or in some cases by replacing animals entirely there. And that is probably the first place we're going to see any really wide-scale replacement of animals, which like you said, we all want at some point as long as it's going to give us valid results. I mean, the stakes are high. You know, we just can't go out there and try something new and then then have it backfire terribly on us and really have it harm people. And then the whole of society will not be happy at all about the decision they made. And so one of the things I really love about NA3RC is how well you folks explain all of this. It's so crystal clear on your website. And maybe you can just tell us your website. And I will, of course, include it on the episode response page for this episode. Yep. It's www.na3rsc.org. And if you just Google the North American 3Rs Collaborative, we'll come up pretty easy. So let's get back to this initiative, right? So the MPS initiative, um, you mentioned that you have all of these groups that have prepackaged solutions and you're you're getting all of the relevant players and stakeholders together to get them engaged and, you know, again, be the quarterback in this. How many people are we talking about? Give our listeners an idea of how far you guys have already come in getting this out there, these animal alternatives to refine the way we collect data. 
So we actually have either 28 or 30 companies that provide these solutions, these NPS solutions, and each company has at least one representative or a couple representatives. And then we probably have about five or 10 additional companies. These might be representatives from drug companies, other nonprofits, regulatory agents, et cetera. So on our like contact list for this initiative, we've got over 80 people involved. And if you want to see the companies or want to learn more about the initiative, we actually have a technology hub for the MPS where you can kind of sort them by organ type and kind of see what's out there because there's a lot of companies and a lot of slightly different systems. They're very complex. Right. And so speaking of complex, microphysiological systems is a complex term. Explain to us what we mean. When we say MPS, you know, in terms of what the public keeps hearing, what are the catchphrases that they're being told can replace animals right now, for example, by groups that oppose animal research? What are we talking about? What are these MPSs? So you might have heard the term organ on a chip, body on a chip, human on a chip, organoid, spheroid, 3D tissue cultures. These are all kind of catchphrases. But what they really mean and why we use the term MPS is because it's the most inclusive because some of these devices, these systems actually are on chips developed for computers, very small chips, but some are just in like a well, like 96 well plates, a little bucket and they're spheroids. And so we want to be really inclusive because these different platforms have different advantages. But when I say MPS, what I'm really talking about is a miniature device, that's the micro, and then the physiological system part is it's a miniature device that actually mimics the function, the cellular metabolism, and or the cellular dynamics of organs. They actually typically have multiple cell types. They can either be human or animal cells, actually. There are animal MPS that are really used for for validation purposes. They can be healthy or diseased tissues. So again, to kind of look at what the differences are, they have cell-cell communication and interaction. They often have flow of fluid through the simulated organ, and they really simulate this real-world behavior of what happens in our bodies, but at a very, very small scale. Like if it's in a 96-wall plate, that's smaller than like the end of an eraser. Um, And if it's a chip, it's only a couple inches long. And so they're, they're quite small devices. You mentioned that the academic institutions are using technologies like this and developing them. And of course, we have these companies that are dedicating a lot of their time um, and a lot of investors. If you, if you look at the news, people are investing in these technologies left and right. And I've heard legislators uh, get very excited about them. Most of us do. But I also hear legislators say things like, well, it won't be long until we won't need animals in research anymore. And I don't think that's true. And we can cover that in a few minutes. But maybe you can explain to our listeners how these organoids and spheroids and organs on chips and systems on chips. How are these technologies, these non-animal technologies, uh, how are they being used currently? So I actually know there are um, drug companies out there right now that are using them to screen compounds early in development. Basically, when a drug company wants to develop a new drug, you know, say there's some disease out there where lots of patients are affected, they're sick, and they want to help make them better, so they're looking for a new drug candidate, they have a bunch of compounds, chemical compounds, that they actually already, before MPS, usually use some sort of computer technology or like simple in vitro models. They do some some sort of sleuthing to try to figure out, okay, which ones are we actually going to even bother to put in animal trials? They've already 
already been doing this. But what happens sometimes now is they have a compound. It's looking really promising. It works in the rat. It works in the non-human primate. It works in, you know, it works in these species. Then it goes to humans and it fails. Either it's toxic to the humans that are in those clinical trials or it's just not effective. So that's sometimes what happens right now, which is a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of effort. Nobody wants this situation, but it just is what it is right now because we haven't had a lot of other good options. So what some companies are doing right now is they're starting to put the human earlier in the process. So they're losing these human MPS to identify the best candidates. And so, like I said, you can have healthy and diseased MPS. So sometimes, you know, they'll test these good drug candidates in the MPS, see which ones actually fix the diseased MPS. And then they also look at toxicity. So which ones are still, you know, the cells are actually still able to function and all of that. They'll still put it in animals often to still kind of look at the whole body. They'll still go to clinical trials, etc. But before they go to clinical trials, they do have to go through the regulatory process. And so sometimes right now, to kind of complement that traditional animal data, they do submit their MPS data. And they can sometimes use that to kind of support, yes, this drug is ready to go into humans. We also know a case where MPS data alone has been able to actually expand the label for a drug had already been approved, which is pretty exciting. They kind of have this in-house screening piece. They kind of have this regulatory submission piece. You know, there's also scientists that are just using this to understand cellular mechanisms, drug metabolism, drug-drug interaction. And then kind of the other piece where this can be really promising is sometimes there's diseases out there where we really do not have a good animal model. And this is sometimes an interesting case because it's not going to replace animals because there are no animals being used for this rare therapy, but it is going to get good drugs that are safe and effective to patients that just were not available before. So there's a lot of exciting work being done now, but a lot of it is fairly early stages. It's somewhat cautious. It's in particular organs. There's a few multi-organ systems. So it's definitely not incredibly widespread. Mm -hmm. And this is what we keep hearing from groups like PETA and others like that, where they say, you know, we should be moving to human relevant technologies. These MPS systems that you described are all based on human tissue, right? Human stem cells and whatever else they use to create these systems to simulate what's actually happening in people. And so on the face of it, that sounds pretty fantastic, right? It sounds like you're going to A, not have to use animals anymore, which we would all love, and B, get an answer that is more relevant and probably more predictive, really really, really fast and that that's going to bring us drugs sooner. And you already intimated that the FDA, who is the federal agency that approves these drugs for release, right, that they're engaged in this and that they've already approved at least the expansion of one such drug that's already been on the market for some other use, right? So these are all really exciting things because the FDA just approved something that didn't actually run through animal tests to change its use. So that sounds perfect. And, you know, that leads me to the question of, you know, well, so then why are we still doing it? Why aren't we just using these now? Because we keep hearing from PETA and others that we don't need animals. We can just use these human-relevant technologies. And for all the reasons we just mentioned, that seems like a very logical next step. Why aren't we just doing that? What's the issue? 
Yeah, and it does. It sounds great. And the technology is so exciting. And some of the case studies that I've heard these companies talk about really make a difference to patients today, which is incredible. But it's still technology that's fairly early on. Right now, um, one of the big issues is when we're testing drugs for safety, we want to make sure that it's actually going to where we want it to go, that it is not affecting some other part of your body in an adverse way. And right now, there are some systems that have multiple MPS linked together. So say a gut MPS, a heart, a liver, a kidney, but getting the flow between those organs exactly right is pretty challenging. And even getting all those organs to coexist in the same system, it's just very complex. There's a lot that we do not know about the human body. So that can be really challenging to model something that we don't know. We need more confidence in these systems. Some other things that are really important is we don't have a lot of qualification of these systems. And what that means is that we don't have proof necessarily with some of them that way work. So ideally, we want to test these systems taking drugs where we already know, okay, this drug is safe, it's effective. This drug we thought was safe, but it was actually toxic. This drug was not effective. Test a bunch of these in the organ and actually see, yes, we're getting the same data that we saw in real human patients. And there's also just issues of scale, of reproducibility. The same things that plague animal research experiments can be really important. So even thinking about the cell source And the genetic background of the cells is really important, just like we might think about the type of animal that we're using, the strain, the genetic background. They're very complex. And the human body, it's very complex. And there's a lot that we still don't know. And I will also mention that there's a few areas where it's somewhat doubtful that MPS will ever be used for. So thinking about behavior, mental health, bone fractures, things that literally are large scale, these are very small. So I think these technologies are promising. I'm not sure if they will ever entirely replace all of animal research just because of their limitations, but they are very promising and very exciting. Yeah, and we should be integrating them whenever we can to get more predictive results and reduce the number of animals needed for the information we need. I mean, you touched on something that I like to remind people of, but probably in every episode, so they're probably sick of hearing it, but we don't really know all there is to know about biological systems, right? We didn't create them. You know, we are biological systems and we're still trying to figure out how they work when they're healthy so we can recognize when they're diseased. You know, I really appreciate that you made this point because the public doesn't think that right now. They're being told that, no, we don't need animals at all. We can just use these systems. And I I don't know how we can do that if we don't know how to create a biological system in order to mimic one fully. And the legislators are, you know, they're members of the public as well. They've bought into this. I mean, we see it all the time in, in the narratives they share with the public. And they don't actually understand, I don't believe, the depth of what it is they're actually saying and the consequences that could be brought to bear if they go ahead and replace animals before we are really certain that we have another way to get this information. And the public will pay that price. And I I guess the politicians will then too. (laughs) 
after the fact, right? But none of us want to be in that position. And so this is one of the one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it. It's so important for the public to understand really how these things work and where they're functional. And this isn't just, you know, people who work with animals don't want to use them because they're not animals. That's crazy talk. None of us want this work in animals to continue unless it really, really has to. And the issue we have right now is that it really has to if we still want biomedical progress. And that really is the only decision to make. Do you want medical advances still for yourself and your loved ones, including your pets, or not? That's the only choice you really have to make. And if your answer is yes, then you have to accept that animals are still necessary for some of this. And hopefully you'll get on this train and follow NE3RC and their initiative to be the quarterbacks and pull all of this together to move it in the direction of stronger science, faster cures, and fewer animals. If we keep moving in that direction, we will move in the direction of more and more predictive human relevant science and fewer and fewer animals needed to accomplish that objective. We'll move in the direction of narrowing that 95% gap and have more effective drugs released faster. That really is the answer, right? Yeah. Let me also emphasize, it can be pretty challenging to develop these systems to begin with. The human body, all the different kinds of diseases we have is so complex. That's why there are 30 companies when this technology is fairly new, because it is very diverse. And the FDA actually has an alternative methods working group that is highly engaged with the MPS community that's really interested in these technologies. They're engaged, they're interested, but ultimately we want to make sure that, again, the drugs we're bringing to patients are both safe and effective. And MPS are hopefully going to really support that and really help reduce animal research. And what we really need, if people really want to move this and advance this forward, is for them to get on the train you're on, right? Let's bring these stakeholders together, including the regulatory agencies like the FDA. Let's get the public involved in these conversations. Let's bring these fantastically brilliant, loving people who are developing these technologies. Let's bring them all together and get things going instead of wasting everybody's time and diverting their attention from what really matters, from real solutions, and diverting it into this us-against-them nonsense that is not helping people and is certainly not helping animals, right? I mean, that's the thing that really gets me about all of this is that, you know, at the end of the day, nothing changes for our animals, right? And they're still waiting for all of us people to figure out what the hell it is we're doing here. And all of this false narrative stuff by the groups who oppose research and by the politicians who have been completely fooled by them or just have decided it's good for their voting record, right? All this really is, is a distraction from us getting things done for the benefit of people and animals. In fact, all of it is harmful to people and animals, and we need to knock it off. And instead, people need to follow the NA3RC and Dr. LaFollette. Thank you so very, very much for all of your time today. You know, your experience and your love for people and animals is palpable, and I appreciate everything that you do and everything that you have done and everything I know you're going to do. Um, it's just fascinating to watch you because you're like a speeding freight train for progress in the interest of love and compassion for animals and people, and I think you're fantastic. And with that, I'm going to give you an opportunity to share any final thoughts you may want to share with our listeners, you know, it can be about MPS or anything else that you'd want them to think about before we say goodbye. I think MPS are an amazing technology. It holds a lot of promise, but we need to be realistic and practical about how long it's going to take us to really get confident in these technologies. And we want to be slow. We want to be cautious. And we also want to learn from animal research. We want to kind of learn from some of the mistakes, some of the flaws that currently happens in animal research to make these systems really great from the get-go. And part of that is having really good validation 
education, really good qualification early on. It's just one of six of the initiatives that the NA3RC is focused on. We also focused on the lives of animals that are used right now. We focused on good experimental design. We've got another replacement that we've actually, I'll, I'll just say out there that we've helped five institutions change practices, replacing over 8,000 rodents every year with this other technology. So there's a lot that we're doing. We're a fairly young organization, but we're really excited. We're also hiring. So um, you might have a chance by the time this episode is out to apply for our new program manager position. I think everyone's really trying to do the right thing. And it's our job to help them, to help people do their job even better, to help them figure out what's the next best thing, how can they enact the three R's better, and just bit by bit enact them and improve the whole scientific process. Yeah. Well, human and animal lives are at stake. So thank you so very much. Again, uh, go to the NA3RC website. The link will be there for you on the episode response page, along with some other references. It has been amazing to have you. Uh, Thank you so much for your time. Thank you too, Cindy. Microphysiological systems, MPS. Fascinating technologies with so much potential to provide us with better treatments faster than ever. But as we learned today, they can't fully replace animal models. We're simply not there yet, and animal rights groups and like-minded politicians place us and everyone we love in serious danger by overpromising on these technologies in order to end research with animals right now. Not because it isn't effective, but because they don't like it, and they don't appear to be all that concerned about what the rest of us will lose so they can have their way. Most of what we've learned in order to develop these technologies in the first place was informed by research with animals. And optimizing these technologies to replace animals in the future will depend on what we continue to learn from them now. We can't do this without them. And if you really love animals, and you really want to reduce our dependence on them for medical advances, then you have to be honest about this with yourself and everyone else. Full replacement is a long game. And actual solutions are based in reality, not misrepresentations of reality. Misinformation campaigns against biomedical research hurt us all. We've discussed several heartbreaking examples of the brutal victimization caused by these campaigns in previous episodes. That violence continues today, and the research community has been powerless to stop it. Until now. Find out what I mean on the next episode of Get Real. I'm Dr. Cindy Buckmaster, your host for Get Real, and I hope our discussion today has inspired you to think more deeply about what you would like to see change as we shape our medical future together. Please visit our episode response page for all the cute videos and other resources I promised you today. You'll find the link in the lower right-hand corner of our website at getrealpodcast.info. And please visit our support link and make a small monthly donation to help us keep rolling. There's still so much to talk about, and I appreciate your engagement so very much. We'll talk soon.